Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Okay, so 2021 is coming to a close. This will be my final episode of the year. And uh, I guess over the last couple of weeks, I've been reflecting a lot about these these past 12 months. So while not certainly not everything went the way I, I wanted this year, but uh, it's definitely been a big year for me in terms of graduate school. I started off this year in January of 2021 by failing my transfer of status. This is sort of like the Oxford version of the qualifying exams, which you go from being a PhD student to a quote, PhD candidate, and uh, it's not supposed to be that challenging. The, uh, the majority of PhD students uh, at Oxford sail through it, but, uh, but not me. Uh, basically, they just want to determine whether you've got a basic plan for your dissertation work, whether you've started on it, and in my case, uh, they determined, uh, nope, not enough work. Uh, the work that's been done is shitty quality, and the overall plan just doesn't make enough sense. Uh, and so uh, it turned out that's exactly what I needed. Nothing is so motivating for me as a good kick in the ass. And so from that point, uh, I got my shit together. And so where now in December 2021, I have officially collected and analyzed all the data I said I would for my thesis. And I've written full drafts of all the empirical chapters. And I've gotten my confirmation of status, the final PhD milestone for the defense, scheduled for early January 2022, exactly one year after I failed my transfer. And uh, several, literally two terms before the sort of expected date of when a student is supposed to do that. So uh, in that sense, ahead of schedule. And... You know, from, from, from this point on, basically all I have to do is revise those chapters, incorporate any feedback that I get during the confirmation, slap an intro and conclusion on there, and boom, that's the thesis. So it'll leave me with plenty of time in 2022 for podcasting, writing, and working towards what's next. Keep an eye out on the show or my newsletter at codycommerce.substack.com if you, uh, if you want to follow along with what's happening there. Okay, to the show. My guest today is Charles King, and I first learned of Charles' work when I saw a notice anticipating the publication of his most recent book, Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. I saw this and I was like, oh my god, a general audience book about the history of anthropology, sign me up. And I pre-ordered it straight away. Uh, as listeners of this show will, uh, you know, may, might know, even though I'm a psychologist by training, I have a not-so-secret obsession with anthropologists, and particularly the history, intellectual history of anthropology. And uh, as hope, it turned out to be a great fucking book. It uh, tells a story about Franz Boas, the father of American cultural anthropology, and his group of students, and how they changed the face of anthropology in the first half of the 20th century. And also, as well, how... The ideas that they come up with sort of laid a foundation for the way that we now in the, the mainstream more readily think about race and gender and all that sort of stuff. 
But uh, anyway, so the cast of characters includes Margaret Mead, Ruth Benedict, Zora Neale Hurston, Gregory Bateson, uh, I think most of whom come up in the course of this conversation, and uh, yeah, a whole host of others. But, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was only after that, it was later on that I discovered that uh, <laughs> Charles is what you might call a man after my own heart. He also is not trained as an anthropologist. He is a professor of international affairs and government at Georgetown. But uh, it, was, it was his wife, who is an anthropologist, that turned him on to the basic you know, insight that became the story. Uh, and it gets even better from there. His initial, his, his initial interests were, were in the former Soviet states. In particular, one of his previous books was on the history of the Caucasus. It is called The Ghost of Freedom. And uh, as some of you may also know, I spent my entire second year of my PhD taking Georgian language, and my partner and I often throw elaborate Georgian feasts uh, called the Supra, serving Georgian wine and preparing a great deal of Georgian food, which, uh, by the way, probably goes some way toward explaining how it is I came to fail key PhD milestones. But at any rate, it was clear to me that this was a guy I really wanted to meet and to talk to. And I really, I did enjoy our conversation a lot, as I've certainly come to look up to Charles and his work in more ways than one. So without any further ado, here is Charles Kane. So the first question I usually like to ask people is, is where did you grow up? So I grew up in Northwest Arkansas. Um, in the U.S., in um, the Ozark Mountains. I grew up on a cattle farm that had been in our family since the 1880s or so. Um, my my dad worked in a factory and, and then did farming in his very spare, spare time. And, um, and my mom was a lunch lady at a local junior high school. And, um, and I had a, really a, a kind of idyllic childhood in some ways. I got to run through the the woods and swing on grapevines and um, have animals around and cats and dogs and cows and horses. And it was it was pretty fantastic. Um, but it's also a pretty small place. It was it was rural. And uh, and, you know, then I would ride the school bus to uh, town to to go to school, and um, it tells you something about continuity in that kind of rural American environment, at least in that era. That the uh, the guy who drove the school bus for me was the same guy who drove the school bus for my mom and dad. Um, so uh, not not seemingly not a lot had, had changed <laughs> in several decades um, there. So I grew up there, um, then kind of went down the road to what seemed to be, I think, for the whole whole family in some ways, the the obvious place um, for college. There was a lot of um, uh, conflict in a, in a way between my father and myself about where I would go to school and eventually ended up um, at the University of Arkansas down the down the highway and um, spent spent my undergraduate years there, except for one, which um, on a in, in some weird um, a uh, bit of luck, the University of Cambridge and the University of Arkansas had an exchange program. That is, that is an unlikely pairing. Um, but, but Cambridge had such a thing, um, thanks to some very enterprising Arkansan professors, I think, who set this up. And so I spent my junior year in Cambridge, and that changed everything. 
um, because it was a style of learning and reading and self-directed exploration that I, that I just hadn't experienced before. And, um, so then I finished at the, finished at the university of Arkansas and that was, um, we came back into my senior year at, at Arkansas. And, um, and then that was the kind of the beginning of the rest of my career. Uh, okay. So a bunch that I want to, I want to cover in that. The first thing is that, so you said your, your mom was a lunch lady. Uh, what is, I'm curious about that. What is, what did, what did that look like what, in, in back in, in the day? What was what was a lunch lady serving? What was she doing? What what did her what did her sort of day look like? Well, you know, it's that that's an interesting question. I think she she took that job because I think I absolutely hated school um, when I when I started. In fact, my my dad, both my parents had finished high school, but they never went on to college. I'm the first person in my family to go to. Um, to go to college. And my dad used to joke that that he couldn't get me to start to school. And then once he got me started, he couldn't get me stopped, which is which is actually kind of true. And um, and so my mom took a job um, in in cooking in school, in part so that I think she could look after me um, so that, uh, that that I might, you know, she could be closer to me. She could kind of keep an eye on me. And, uh, you know, it was an incredible, incredible act of love. And yeah. back in the day, her, um, her job, uh, consisted and you'll find this hard to believe now, but as a lunch lady, um, her job consisted of actually making food, right. you know, wow. like, like from, from scratch yeah. for kids in, in school. And, given you know american diets these days that's still kind of a rarity but she and the other women and they were all women at the time um who worked in this environment cooked up some pretty amazing stuff um for, for kids to kids to eat and uh, my mom was a she uh, she's still alive she's a terrific um cook and uh she brought some of that to to nutrition and public service in our local public school system yeah wow that is really cool um both the 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 cooking meals from scratch and the uh, act of love which you described, um, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, here's a, here's another random question. So, uh, it, it, you grew up in uh, Arkansas in the in the Ozarks. Did you watch the the TV show Ozark? Um, that you know, <laughs> you know, I, I started it, and I just, I, to be honest, I just couldn't get into it. I'm afraid I just couldn't get into it. But, um, and I think it's pretty violent, from what I understand, if you stick with some of the later episodes. But, Absolutely, um, yeah. So, no, so, so that, I bailed. That's the thing about that show is that I, if you look at the peak of when our society was consuming that, it was right around the time our society was also fascinated with Tiger King. So that sort of like oh, 2020 yeah, yeah, yeah. low right. point where there is something about the depths of violence in, in a, uh, that you could only have in a rural environment like that. Uh, yeah. That well, yeah. I don't, our, I, our collective consciousness. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. I, um, you know, it, it, uh, coming from that in that part of the world, I had, you know, really no, no reason to care about the other stuff that I ended up caring about, um, in life or intellectually. I mean, it, uh, when I look back on it, and, and of course I still go visit and have many close friends in, in, um, there in my old hometown, and it's still in so many ways a, a world away from the 
from the career that I, that I have and the, the writing that I've done. But, um, at the same time, you know, um, I think there are certain advantages to coming from unusual backgrounds in, um, in whatever field you're, you're working in. I think it gives you a kind of orthogonal view of, of a field of study. I've always been sort of attracted to the, um, to the less, uh, well-trod paths of just about any field that I've, that I've gone into. Um, I like to look in weird bits of archives. Um, I like to try to raise voices that, uh, that haven't been raised before, you know, in the writing that I do. Um, and I think, you know, you don't have to over-psychologize it, but I think there's, there's something to not being part of a usual trajectory um, that's been very important from that kind of background. So this is definitely something that I want to touch on that I think we'll hopefully explore later, which is that, so, I mean, you're an, an incredibly accomplished scholar um, and, you know, you sort of have your area of expertise. I don't know exactly how you describe it, but essentially political science, area studies, international affairs, things that are associated with your professorial titles. Um, mm. But your major bestseller that, uh, mm. you know, like I think has been, you know, your most publicly uh, received book uh, is in a field that just simply isn't your your it's a, it's, it's a, so that's that's the ultimate um, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know sort of approaching something from a the outside perspective that I think yeah. I, I, I agree with you that it gives you a lot of leverage to understand the scope and interest of, of, what, of what you have in front of you yeah well I mean part of part of this comes from um, maybe um, a fair amount of chutzpah on my part to sort of dive into things that I don't know much about to begin with. Um, but part of it, I think, you know, I go back again to the, to how I kind of made my way into an academic life and a writing life. And I did it by making stuff up as I went along. I don't mean making up facts, but making up the, the way you be this thing, the way you, um, live this life because I didn't, apart from what I saw on PBS, which actually was kind of important in watching documentaries and watching shows about history and so forth as a kid. Um, I didn't know what an academic was. I didn't know what a professor did. I don't know, didn't know what, how you, that you could possibly make a life by writing things and then assuming that people would, would publish them and read them and so on. So, um, even as, you know, I've gotten, closer, I guess, to a, to a kind of American intellectual establishment. I teach at a great university, I, you know, live in Washington and I write, write books that, that get published. Um, I still feel like I'm kind of making up the next steps as I, as I go along. And, um, you know, I've had people I look at and sort of think, I wonder how they got to where they are. I wonder how they sort of started writing and speaking in the way that they they write and speak, but um, but I think this is so true of, of of so many people who come into this profession from the outside. It can feel very scary and very disorienting, you know, at, at the beginning because you just you don't know what the rules are. You don't know um, what you're supposed to be doing, and of course, you're never smart enough, and you're never you're never you're never good enough. Um, but it it um, it has some great advantages to it because with a fair amount of bravery and chutzpah, um, 
it, it, your, your sort of secret superpower is the ability to ask questions that that um, that not everyone will obviously ask. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that is part of that you know orthogonal approach of coming from something besides the orthodoxy of a particular discipline. When you can go into anthropology as an outsider and say, "Oh, what's the, uh, you know, oh wow, I found this story. What does it mean to me? Well, whatever it's going to mean to me as a non-anthropologist is going to be something different than what anthropologists are going to get out of it, and it's going to mean something to the, you know, collective out, you know, non-anthropologist, you know, group of of, uh, of the rest of the world." Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I should I should also say here that you know I had the very good fortune to marry um, an anthropologist. And so it really helps to have one in the house. <laughs> so you uh, you did say that uh, the initial idea, the sort of germ of that came from your wife, right? Yeah, for, well, from our conversations. Yeah, Maggie Paxson, who's a wonderful um, writer and performer and, and trained anthropologist. I You know, in, in over the years and speaking with her and having what we joked about as our sort of private social science seminar at the breakfast table every day. Um, I, I just, I was fascinated by the way that her brain works and, and to a degree, the way, you know, professional training in this field had helped it to work. And, and I thought the more I thought about that, the more I thought about issues of race and gender and, and this explosion of interest in these topics in the United States, that there was a kind of story here to tell about the impact of this discipline on what we now think of as as common sense, at least in some quarters. In fact, in many quarters in the United States these days, there's always a backlash. But um, you know, we have undergone um, in most of modern society a revolution in how we think about. Um, uh, race, gender, sexuality, um, hierarchy, opportunity over the last century. Uh, we organize our museums differently. We teach graduate students uh, differently. Um, what's considered commonsensical and obvious behavior from a from a human resources setting to um, you know representation in the media, all of these things have, have undergone a massive transformation. The reckoning with empire, the reckoning with race, reckoning with colonialism, um, and a big part of that story is to me not just shifts in power, but shifts in intellectual frames. I mean, it's it's really the the story of some academic discoveries that through lots of different channels leached out into public consciousness. And I didn't really think anyone had exactly told that story before. And what I also wanted to do along the way was to uh, tell a neighboring discipline in anthropology that you your discipline mattered deeply um, and still matters deeply um, in American public life and even <clears throat> more broadly um, than that. And so it's in some ways... Um, you know, a love letter to colleagues down the hall about about the power of um, a particular way of seeing the world that I think they pioneered. Yeah, I definitely want to ask you more about, for sure, the book, as well as your thoughts on anthropology generally, um, to sort of draw that out. But maybe um, we could get there sort of by way of making a line between you know, your University of Arkansas experience and then uh, sort of your initial 
work in in Russia and Eastern European studies and political science and all that sort of stuff. So how? Uh, so you went from uh, uh, University of Arkansas by way of Cambridge, evidently, to uh, uh, Oxford, and mm-hmm. you did your master's and PhD there. How did you get specifically into Russia and Eastern Europe as a, an area of expertise? Yeah, I mean, to a degree, um, it was stumbling and, and accident and some good fortune along the way and some really terrific, you know, teachers along the way that I think um, drew me into this field. I, um, It was very clear at the beginning, I was interested in Russia because it was about as, or the Soviet Union at the time, because it was about as far away from the farm in Arkansas as I could possibly imagine. Um, you know, this was the 1980s. It was the uh, height of the Reagan Cold War. And um, if you were interested in the communists, um, you know, that was a pretty radical thing to do. And I think I kind of wanted to be radical or different or revolutionary in my way. And so reading Marx and Lenin and, you know, I had a little bust of Lenin on my desk at the university. <laughs> you know, it just This just seemed like a really radical thing to do when you're 19 or 20 years old and you're trying to overturn the establishment in one form or another. Um, And uh, I think I also sniffed out at that point that if I wanted a career um, doing things kind of in the public eye, and I didn't really know, I didn't know what it was to be an academic and I, I didn't really think I wanted to be a professor. I didn't really know what that entailed, but I knew I wanted to kind of do things in the world somehow. And at that stage, you know, if you were interested in international affairs or public policy, um, knowing something about the Soviet Union was a pretty smart career path. And so all of that stuff kind of came together in my thinking, well, I'll apply to do a master's degree in Russian and East European studies. I'd studied Russian at the University of Arkansas. My first time out of the country, the first time I had to get a passport was to go to the Soviet Union with my Russian class in 1987. We spent a week or 10 days um, there. And um, and I was just hooked on, you know, difference in the international system and on this on, on the on a, a way of organizing politics and the economy and, and social life that was just very, very different from anything I experienced um, before. And so I, I went off to Oxford. Um, I managed to get a, a thing called a Marshall Scholarship, which um, is one of these competitive um, uh, fellowships that, you know, you get to do graduate school for for Americans. And um, and then I think I was really by that stage fully, fully hooked that, you know, this was good. Something to do with Eastern Europe was going to be my career path. But I thought at that stage, I'll do a two-year master's degree and then I'll go off and, and be a journalist because Soviet Union collapsed one year into my two-year master's degree program on the country that had just now disappeared from the map. And, you know, Yugoslavia was beginning to shake and it all seemed... Um, so immediate, you know, that the thing, the history I was studying, the politics I was engaged in, this all seemed um, like the thing you wanted to be doing right at that moment because it mattered um, in in the world. And um, I sniffed around at what it would be like to to be a journalist. You know, once again, I had no clue about how you get to be a journalist. Um, 
I took the Reuters um, exam at that stage. I don't know if they still do this, but you had to take an exam to become a Reuters um, correspondent and um, failed the exam. So I had, at that point, there wasn't a lot left but um, uh, to stay in graduate school. <laughs> so I decided to stay around and do the, do, do the DPhil, um, also on, on an East European topic. So tell me about that first trip to to Russia slash Soviet Union. What stuck with you from that? What do you look back on and say, wow, that actually, I saw something there that kind of like, it, you know, maybe I didn't understand at the time, but it became something that was uh, an observation that stuck with me till later on. Well, it, it sounds like a, a, a total cliche, but I think the thing that most impressed me at the time was... Um, was the, the the impossibility of thinking about this place in abstractions, you know, that I met actual people there. And I stayed in in a Soviet uh, dorm with um, students at the local university. And, um, you know, you go to dance parties with people as undergraduates and you get to talk to them and meet them and, and um, and converse with them. By that stage, I could, you know, my Russian was good enough to sort of converse with with people, um, and they became real in this way that, um, for my first time out of the United States, for my first time sort of living for a very short period of time in a foreign language environment, um, I, you know, I the the kind of human connection ended up being revelatory um, to me. And it was probably also my first experience in a foreign country being very dumb, you know, being sort of stupid and and being stupid in another language. And that, I think, over time um, came to mean a lot to me. And I had that experience um, again. In fact, I've, I've, I seem to have thrown myself in lots of ex- lots of contexts in which I'm very stupid. And maybe that's how I start. That's what. That's how I start with a book project. You know, I find something that I'm really, really interested in and don't know. I know something about, but not a huge amount about, and then educate myself kind of along the way. And I think that does go back to you know 1987 and the thrill of that, the absolute thrill of feeling the disorientation of um, cultural difference. Um, tied to, you know, the, the connection with, um, with individual people. So that, com- that combination of things ends up being a, a good part of how I approach writing life and academic life now. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's see. So, uh, I guess, uh, so there are two of your books that I've read. One is God's the Up Air, which we'll get to in a minute. The other one is uh, this little guy right here, uh, The Ghosts of Freedom. Oh, there it is. Your, uh, your History of the Caucus. It's an area of interest mm-hmm. for me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so I'm curious, tell me, uh, to, 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 hear, to hear about this, so can you tell me about, yeah, what was the the experience of, you know, so, so by this point you would, you, would, uh, you know, you had familiarity with Russia, uh, and then mm-hmm. other uh, post-Soviet places, um, you know, for example, I believe your first book was on Moldova. Um, Correct. And then uh, you sort of end up starting, you know, this project about the history of the caucus and that, that mm-hmm. part of the world. 
where did that come from and what was the sort of experience that gave you that insight that you were just talking about where it's like, ah, here is something I'm really interested in, but I'm feeling that kind of, um, that, uh, that level of, of out of placeness that uh, makes me feel, okay, there's something to, that, I, that I really want to get to know here. Yeah. Well, I, um, you know, I, as you said, I, I, I wrote my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation, my first book about Moldova, um, which if you had rewound three or four years before I finished the defill, um, I don't know that I could have really identified the place or would have um, certainly known, known much of anything about it. Um, but I, when I got to graduate school, I had Russian, and I thought um, I should add another East European language. And um, I didn't really want to do another Slavic language, and Hungarian was way too hard, and um, Albanian seemed kind of out of the way. And so there was Romanian, and um, I, I answered an ad on the Language Teaching Center bulletin board in Oxford. You had to connect with people back in that day by, you know, looking at um, a handwritten note for for language instruction on the bulletin board and um, uh, met the guy who would uh, a guy named Katrin Partenia, who's a wonderful Romanian, turned out then became a wonderful Romanian um, novelist and philosopher. And he was studying in Oxford at that time and um, and worked with me on Romanian. We became fast friends and and started visiting him and his family in, in Romania. I just kind of was bowled over by this amazing culture and, and history and um, and language. And when I was looking around for a dissertation topic, the thing that kind of suggested itself to me was sort of debates over nationalism and national identity between Romanian, Romanian zone, Romanian cultural zone, and a kind of Russian or Ukrainian cultural zone and Moldova was right there in the middle. This, by the way, in the early 1990s was also the time when what the Soviets called the nationalities question was on the agenda as as never before, right? I mean, the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it became evident that there were very few Western experts on things other than Kremlin politics. You know, there were um, there there were so few specialists on Ukraine or Central Asia. You know, just and so my generation of scholars in this field became the first post-Soviet um, set of specialists, and and all of us sort of branched out and focused on different parts of the Eurasian uh, space. And there was there were two or three other people who were writing about Moldova at the time. And we used to joke that, you know, if we happen to be at the same conference, do not get in the same taxi cab, because if there were an accident, the entire Moldovan studies world would suddenly um, be destroyed. And that became my first um, book. And for many years, I, I was very interested in the politics of, of Moldova, Romania, of the wider southeastern Europe. Um, and sort of jumping across the Black Sea to the Caucasus um, seemed a pretty natural thing. Um, in between there, I had a Fulbright in Turkey, started learning Turkish, got very interested in Turkish politics and Turkish and Ottoman history, um, and wrote a, a history of the Black Sea um, as my as my next book. And for a number of years, I kind of tooled around the Black Sea, writing about different parts of the world around there. But um, then by... 2000 to 99, 2000, I was spending more and more time in, particularly in Georgia. And um, at a time that was also fascinating in terms of the political transformations going on there. 
and um and there was no sort of one volume modern history of the of the caucasus uh to be read and um and so that became the next thing i really spent several years working on yeah uh, what made you fall in love with Georgia? What's what drew you to that area? Or what's what stood out to you about that part of the world? Since you had had the adjacent regions, what seemed what seemed unique or, or, or intriguing about that area for you? Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know that I had exactly the same experience in Georgia that I might have had sort of earlier on when I went to Romania. It's a slightly earlier part of my career. I was fascinated by it, and um, because I think anybody. First of all, culturally, linguistically, the music of the place, the art of the place—it's—it's it's something very special. But I think, but I think this is true of other parts of the Caucasus as well. It is they, it, it is a zone that confounds your categories, while at the same time being deeply obsessed by categories, <laughs> categories of nationality or religion or language. But it's a very confounding place if you don't jump into the national narratives that governments there often want you to believe, but you try to look at things from a ground level perspective, um, try to understand societies or times where the nation hasn't mattered very much, where geography has mattered much, much more, or where religion has come in, has come in far more varieties than the local um, Orthodox with a small O, um, religious leaders might uh, want you to believe. And, um, you know, it, it is a, it is a, place that has sort of struggled to define itself um, uh, for for centuries over and against very powerful neighbors. And that story is also really fascinating to me. You know, what happens with what happens to outlying borderland places that are confronted by very large imperial or, or religious forces from the outside that want them to behave in a very particular way. So um, I don't think anybody can go to uh, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, the North Caucasus without coming away just absolutely bowled over, fascinated um, by, by, that, by that part of the world. And what I wanted to do in, in The Ghost of Freedom in that book was not just to give a kind of political history of this part of the world, but also to talk about geography, to use geography as a way of um, – writing against national categories, which has also been a kind of theme of the work that I've done. Um, and also to try to understand, you know, the imaginary world of outsiders, the imagination that outsiders bring to their understanding um, of, of Eastern Europe, which is, which has also been a kind of big theme in my writing. Yeah. You're really cool. Yeah. The first time that, uh, you know, it occurred to me that there was something really interesting going on in that part of the world, which of course, you know, for a long portion of my life was a complete blank spot on the map was mm. my uh, my partner and I we went to to World Cup in Russia in 2018 um, mm. and basically you know we were just wandering around Moscow and, and, and everything like that and hanging out and we were just like okay like let's go get something to eat whatever um, it's sort of you know like midday and whatever and we pop into a Georgian restaurant we're like Georgian food mm. I don't really know what that is whatever mm. and then I sat down and I can distinctly remember this feeling I had, which I, I, I had never in my entire life been so upset with humanity before because I had lived <laughs> for 20-something years and no one had thought to tell me that there was this incredible 
delicious, surprising. And I, I couldn't believe that the world had just sort of kept this from me this entire time. And that was the sort of, um, you know, like opening into this uh, and just sort of like, whoa, what's going on over here? And then just becoming increasingly, increasingly aware of just how fascinating, uh, and, you know, how deep the, the, the cultural and political and geographical, linguistic, culinary, all that stuff is in that part of the world. So yeah, you know, and there there are um, it, it, food is a particularly good way into Georgian culture. It's you know it's an amazing cuisine, and um, and it, it there are particular sets of tastes like you know um, combinations of lime and cilantro and sweet corn. You know, yield a particular version of the of, of the world but in the georgian case if you've got you know pomegranate and cumin seeds um and cilantro and a couple of other things then it you know you immediately think ah, i'm in a very different cultural space here and um and i think anybody who has um who has uh, traveled there who's seen the landscape who has um, studied the history or made an attempt at the language and i have to say i've only made the tiniest tiniest uh, attempt i think georgian is a bit of a lifetime uh commitment um if you're going to to work on um on, on that but anybody who has been down one of those roads i think has to come away amazed yeah yeah no my my year of studying georgian during the second year of my phd it's at a first approximation i got absolutely nowhere with it yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I got pretty, pretty decent command over the scripts, uh, which of course, you know, is, you know, but like, it's one of those things that I think when you're approaching a language that you need a little bit of that intuition about how the language comes out of you. Uh, and sometimes you have it with a language, sometimes you find that it's there initially, sometimes it isn't. And it can really help mm -hmm. to like do a deep dive into it, let it sit let it incubate, you know, sort of dormant for a while and then come back to it. And then you have a little bit more of that intuition build up. Cause at the end yeah. of the day, like, you know, for Georgian, when it's like, you know, like you're looking at a word and it's like, okay, well I know what all those sounds are, but like after like the sixth consonant in a row to begin that word, it's like, I don't even know how my mouth's going to begin to like, uh, form this, 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 this strange utterance. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing, um, sound inventory and, um, and, and, uh, you know, you don't, you, of course, you have very little to hang your hat on when you're starting to study that language, both grammatically and, and in terms of vocabulary. <laughs> okay. Uh, I want to I talk about uh, God's the Upper Air. And I guess I want to start off talking about the process of it. So like you said, it's sort of grown out of these conversations with your wife. Um what did you what did you start off with what was a sort of core group of sources that you had that you're like okay i have enough to know that there's something here and then what I'm, I'm curious to know what does the process of growing those sources look like yeah so i'm a real archive rat and, mm -hmm. and i've become that over the the course of my career i mean you know i i teach in a school of international affairs and in a political science department um, but I tend to write books that have the word history somewhere in the title or subtitle. And then the books are filled up with people and biographies. So it's, you know, I have this weird combination of things. But 
the thing that kind of unites all of that is my love of going to an original source. Hmm. And in this particular case, um, we happen to live six blocks away from the Library of Congress, and in the Library of Congress are the Margaret Mead papers. And there are about 500,000 items in the Mead papers. She bequeathed them to the library, to the people of the United States um, upon her death. And they are a remarkable resource, not only for her biography, but because she herself was a pack rat and saved absolutely everything. Um, you know, every um, every excused absence note, it seems that she had as a, as a kid and childhood drawings and the letters of colleagues and lovers and poems that were written to her. And, you know, just, she hoovered up every single thing that she came across in addition, of course, to all of her field notes and materials. And it, it's an incredible testament to the intellectual history of the 20th century. You know, and not, not just in the United States, but because she was a global person in many ways, uh, globally, the history of the social sciences, you name it, it's all in there. And so I started just going um, as many days out, out of the week as I could to the Mead papers and uh, starting through the finding aid and going kind of going from uh, page one through several hundred um, just to the finding aid and ordering up things and, and reading. And then, you know, I, I kind of find when I'm working with any um, archival source where you can't read everything, um, I start doing little sort of test drills down into the um, test holes, down into the archive, sort of ordering up some things that might be interesting, ordering up some random things, ordering some things that just seem to be weirdly placed um, and then ordering up some things that seem to have absolutely no relevance to what I'm interested in just to see what's in the files. And I've done that many times before on different book projects and it, um, it just as a way of orienting yourself in this mass of mass of a collection. And that's when I started to get really interested. I mean, looking at her letters to her doctoral mentor, Franz Boas, looking at, you know, letters to her dear friend um, and, and companion for much of uh, her life, Ruth Benedict, the other, you know, another key character in Gods of the Upper Air. Um, the, to see the way on the page in which some transformative ideas of the 20th century were emerging from ordinary people with ordinary foibles and ordinary blind spots um, mixed in with love and jealousy and hatred and disappointment and revenge and betrayal. Um, that was incredibly compelling. And it, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't know all of that, but for going to the original sources and, and reading through them. So that's how I usually start. And, and when it's not possible to do that, I get really antsy. Um, you know, I'm not very good at reading all, you know, reading all the secondary so literature on a topic and then moving to primary sources. I'm, I'm, I'm never very good at that. I really want to jump into the primary sources as soon as I can. Yeah, so that, that was something I was going to ask you about, particularly the archival stuff. So it's interesting to hear about that. And I guess my general my general sort of high-level question on that is, is where do you think the magic comes from in a good work of intellectual history? 
um, because it, you know it can be a really hit or miss subject. Like sometimes you know if you, if if it, if it isn't working, it can be excruciatingly dull, you know, sort of uh, thing. But then like you know, definitely for me, some of the most profound reading experiences are some of the works of intellectual history where you get the connection of social context, individual life stories, big ideas. It's got it all when it comes together. So where do you think the, the, the sort of, where does the life come into it from that? Yeah. Well, I think that's part of it that, and this is what I wanted to do in the gods, in gods of the upper air was to tell a series of interconnected biographies that also had some big ideas, you know, kind of at the core but um, I, I heard um, the, the writer Sebastian Younger give a talk years and years ago in which he said, you know, the most important thing, of course, he writes, you know, works of reportage and, and really complicated. If you go back to, you know, a book like The Perfect Storm, you know, reportage where all of the people you're reporting about are dead. Um, so how do you reconstitute a story based on, you know, the available data, if you like, um, from people who are no longer around, which is also part of the trick of writing any kind of history, actually. Um, but he said that, you know, people don't want to be lectured to. And the problem with a lot of academic writing is that academics are professional lecturers. You know, you go away and learn a bunch of stuff, and then you come back and share that with an audience. So you're you're an expert and you're telling the audience what the truth about your subject is. But it is a different thing to take a reader on a journey with you, which means that you've got to be a little, little bit vulnerable, in fact, a lot vulnerable at the front, because you can't present yourself as already always already an expert. You know, you you have to you have to write in such a way, and and you don't have to use first person, although some people can and do that, but you have to you have to present this kind of journey of discovery that you're on. Because when you're also writing intellectual history, it's a journey of discovery that your characters um, are on as well. You know, Margaret Mead in 1925, um, when she's off to in American Samoa, does not know she is going to be the most well-known social scientist of the 20th century, arguably. She doesn't know her first book drawn from her doctoral dissertation is going to be you know, the most identifiable work of anthropology of the 20th century, coming of age in Samoa. She has no way of knowing all of this stuff. So you can't write as if she already knows that or that, you know, your other characters already know that. She's got to be um, a, a rather annoying um, uh, graduate student who keeps writing back to Franz Boas about how badly her research is going on the ground and she has no her questions are terribly formed and she's not going to have enough time to do the field work that she wants to do and it's probably all a waste and as she writes to Ruth Benedict she's just going to get a job giving change in the subway when she gets back home because this academic life is never going to work out for her. Um, and so that in some ways is the is the real trick and then there are narrative things that you can do to make that you know to make that work kind of on the page but i think that's where you have to start that's really interesting yeah i, re I really like that description of the journey of discovery for both you and uh, the characters um, okay so speaking of the characters uh margaret mead and gregory bateson i want to talk about them for a second can you maybe so i mean these people go really deep, these two. They're super yeah. fascinating. Um, incomparable geniuses by pretty much 
all accounts. And uh, so I guess for, for people who don't know about them, can you give maybe a quick summary about who they are and their relationship? And then I'm curious uh, to know from you, what were the things you were most surprised or scandalized or intrigued to, to learn about them in the course of researching the book? Yeah, so um, so Margaret Mead, obviously um, graduate student in the 1920s, becomes um, you know increasingly a well-known public-facing anthropologist um, by the 1930s and by the 1970s. Of course, um, when she died, she's um, you know working at the American Museum of Natural History in in New York, and um, and is probably the best-known public anthropologist of that of that era a real a real household name because she commented on virtually any issue in the public eye from how we rear children to the space race to race in the united states famously with james baldwin um and then gregory bateson was um was likewise um one of the major figures of american anthropology of the 20th century and a real pioneer particularly at the intersection of psychology and, and anthropology he had, the two of them were connected because um he happened to be the third husband of uh, margaret mead and the two of them met when um, they were both doing research in papua new guinea in the early 1930s, Mead had come there with her second husband, Rayo Fortune, um, and then uh, from there um, hangs a very long tale of um, a dissolving marriage and her um, falling in love with Bateson, um, with his uh, with his entire being, just being fascinated by his mind and the way that. Um, he saw the world. That story um, has been told in different. Uh, sources, mainly in Mead uh, biographies, but also in the wonderful novel by Lily King, no relation to me, uh, Euphoria, which is a a, a sort of a novel manquet about the three of those anthropologists in Papua New Guinea and um, a fictionalized um, uh, account of, of what happens to them. But I wanted to tell um, the story of the three of those folks in the jungle with helicopter-sized mosquitoes um, buzzing around um, inside a set of local indigenous cultures that they were trying desperately to understand, and at the same time trying to come up, and this is the big story of that chapter in Gods of the Upper Air, trying to figure out what they were doing as social scientists. You know, is, is social science about collecting lots and lots of data and having these minute conclusions about the specific field site that you're working on? Or is social science about a big idea that applies to sort of all of, you know, humanity? And social scientists come in lots of different flavors. And these two, three young researchers were working desperately at figuring out which flavor they were. And um, while they were on the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea, they kind of descended into, um, in some ways, both a literal madness, malaria and gin fueled, um, but also a kind of social scientific madness as they thought they had hit on um, a way that a, a general, if you, you could call it a general field theory of the social sciences that would bring together psychology, anthropology, linguistics, personality studies, all of this stuff to have one gigantic theory of, of human behavior that they called the squares. And when they got back to New York or to London or wherever they were traveling back to, they realized this had all been insane. 
that it had just, you know, they had they had really kind of come to the edge of madness. And that chapter is also about what it's like, you know, um, to throw yourself into these environments in which you don't know anything. You're flailing about desperately to try to understand them, you know, um, and to to break your um, your sense of common sense to break your understanding of, of the world and the, the price of doing of doing that, you know, and, and I wanted to show that kind of on the page in the case of these individuals, it was, you know, it was, it was incredibly painful, a marriage breaking up, a new relationship kind of starting. And by the way, all of that is there um, in the Margaret Mead letters, because she was writing letters back to Ruth Benedict describing all of this that was um, happening at the time. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. So I'm looking at uh, some of the other stuff that I potentially want to talk about. I just want to get a sense for time. Uh, do you have a hard stop on the uh, hour time here? What's uh... No, no, I'm happy to stick with you. Cool. Uh, yeah, because there's, there's so much fascinating uh, stuff here. So I, I've got a few more things I want to ask, if that's all right. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, here's something that I'm just sort of curious to know about. Okay. Um, like... Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, these like just monoliths in 20th century social science. But like to me, like there's something about their books in particular that strike me as, I guess you could say, like suboptimal. Uh, and I guess, but but bluntly, like Mead's prose is incredibly dull in in my uh, I would I would argue as much uh, and then Bateson's like mind and nature like this whole business about the pattern that connects and all of this sort of it sounds like the madness in the jungle theory of everything yeah kind of yeah. so he's like some new agey guru type thing so what do you what do you make of the disconnect between yeah like that's just sort of fascinating to me that there was something uh it's not like they were sitting here being the greatest authors of the 20th century uh like so there's some there's some sort of disconnect there and i'm, I'm curious what you make of that yeah i mean i think um part of it is is just the fact that we would expect if the social sciences are in some way cumulative um you'd expect the work that's being done now to be better <laughs> it's the work that was being done done then and, and if it's not better in some way you know why are we kind of in the enterprise that doesn't mean that it's we're closer to a unified field theory of of um of humanity but um that we're we're um we think that we're doing things in a more sophisticated way sophisticated way than our predecessors did which is exactly what they thought when they looked at late 19th early 20th century anthropology or ethnography um you know, I think there are a couple of things also going on with Mead that um, if she had had her druthers, she would have been a novelist or um, or a poet. Uh, her papers are full of you know poems that she herself wrote or exchanged with with um, with Benedict and others. Um, but uh, when it came to prose writing, what she she wanted to do two things: one, she wanted to be a scientist. And two, she kind of wanted to communicate with uh, with a general public. And I think if you were writing uh, anthropology in the middle of the 20th century, you wanted to have both of those kinds of things front front and center. You know, she also was fully capable of of being very witty and um, and biting. You know, in her prose. And but a lot of that she reserved for her column in Red Book or um, you know the the, the really public facing 
um, work that she did. Um, having said that, I think if you, you know, there are bits of male and female and bits of coming of age that are just, that are terrific, you know, that are terrific reportage. But it's interesting you raise this point because there's another character in the book who is also there to sort of, uh, to counterpose uh, against me. And that's, that's of course, um, Zora Neale Hurston. I was um, going to say, if she wants to be a novelist and a poet, and like, I was like, well, she wants to be Zora Neale Hurston. She, you know, it's a very interesting point because had it not been for the canyon of race, um, she could have imagined herself as a Hurston. And you sort of wonder, I don't have any evidence of this, but you wonder in her quiet moments if she looked at Hurston and said, yeah, that's kind of the kind of career I would want. And I think the answer to that is just no, because I don't think Mead, this very worldly, globally minded, open individual, could still get over the race chasm, you know, in the United States. I mean, at the time they were in graduate school, um, nearly overlapping um, in the 1920s, uh, and you know, certainly doing field work at the same time. Um, Hurston in the Gulf Coast and Mead out in American Samoa, um, they were approaching the work that they did in fundamentally different ways. You know, Hurston to me is kind of the beating heart of Gods of the Upper Air. Not only did she give me that title from um, from her autobiography, but um, she more than anybody embodied the Boazian idea of really throwing yourself into another place. Um, and she did that. I mean, went through multiple uh, voodoo initiation rites in New Orleans and in, and in Haiti. I mean, she tried with her whole being, her spirit, her mind, her body to just really understand a place that was different from from what she knew. And I think there was always still with Mead, you know, wherever she went, a bit of the lab coated social scientist, you know, still a kind of divide between herself and um, and the society she was studying. That's why I think if you look at um, the the social science that Hurston did, which now thankfully has been kind of rediscovered, is being reread, has been republished, that looks far closer to what anthropologists, I think, would recognize as their field today than, than Mead's work um, does. Not because it contains universal theories of humanity but because of the way in which she inserts herself into the narrative the fact that you know somebody might say now her positionality is really evident in everything that she's doing not claiming more for the data or evidence than than one can claim for it um and edging up to a work of literature you know even in her even in her scientific if you want to use that word prose she she once described her field as literary science and i think that's a pretty good a pretty good label for what Hurston did yeah yeah incredible um so as you as you've mentioned the sort of you know part of part of the core arguments of the book is about how this the, the you know group of interconnected people redefined our, our thinking about sexuality gender similar topics you know as as we've sort of touched on um, and one thing that I'm curious about is that so these were these were all people who 
have seen more of the world or had seen more of the world than, than most people and especially most people sort of like at their sort of like matched class and background and that sort of stuff. So you've got Franz Boas, you've got Margaret Mead, Sora Neale Hurston, the people we've been talking about. They were all really great travelers. Um, so I guess going off of what you were just saying about, about Hurston and, and, and immersing yourself in that, what do you think that role of going out there and experiencing these things because even if, whether it was at the Hurston level or at the Mead level, they were going out there, and that was p- fundamentally part of their project, was going out there, experiencing some part of the world other than the one they were used to, and you know, in, interacting with different cultures, experiencing different places. What, what do you, how do you think that that process impacted their conclusions, what they were able to find, and, and, and what do you think the limits of that are? Yeah. Well, Hurston had a great line for this. She said, you know, in, in very Hurstonian prose, you got to you got to go there to know there. And uh, I think they they all in one form or another um, would have found it very strange that that one thought one could pontificate about the way things are in a particular part of the world without kind of going there, studying it, I mean, living it in some way. Now, they all did that imperfectly because um, there are things like research budgets and travel budgets and so on. But, you know, their their ideal field experience was one in which you went to a place, lived there for some amount of time, did your best to learn the language, um, did your best to try to see things from the inside, while also... Um, being a little modest about what you could claim about your knowledge of that place. You know, that's certainly what Boaz taught all of them. Um, Mead herself didn't fully live up to that. Um, Ruth Benedict certainly didn't fully live up to that. They were all trying to do this thing they called anthropology at a distance at, at, at one point. Um, to a degree because of you know the realities of the second world war and the inability to travel and you know so in a you know just as everybody has had to adapt to covid everybody has to adapt to the realities of the possibilities of field work that they find in their um in their era and some and some of those um adaptations are better and smarter than others but um you know they were beginning to cement the idea of what we would now understand as field work across the social sciences as being kind of the the essential features of of good research and you know i think we have to thank them for that even if we would look back at some of their methods and and find them wanting yeah so i then i guess that's that sort of brings us back to the question that i uh you know forecasted previously which is about what what you make of sort of anthropology more generally. So uh, I guess what I'm thinking of is particularly one of the crucial things that sort of separates an anthropological approach, at least in the kind of tradition that we're talking about here from other things, for example, you know, what what my colleagues in um, psychology would do is, is the idea of going out there to a specific field site to, um, t- to get that the particular hands-on uh, experience. And as we've sort of talked about in a couple different uh, settings, you know, like what exactly you can generalize from that is is unclear. And this was a project that um, all of these people were fascinated with is how do you come back 
and relay the story that you've told about this, uh, or that, that you'd like to tell about this place and, and what you found out and all that sort of stuff. So I'm curious from your perspective as something of an outsider to anthropology, having gone through all this and seeing all these people grapple with this question about what can anthropology teach us and, and all that sort of stuff, what what do you what do you currently make of all that? Like, what do you think of where we're at nowadays with that project? You know. Mm-hmm. Well, I you know, I, first of all, I'm a total outsider to anthropology, so I make no claims to being um, inside the discipline. I'm not board certified in that in that field by any stretch of the imagination. But I've spent a lot of time, you know, in the archives of anthropologists and reading the work that they um, that they have done, some of the founders of the field in, in the United States. And you know, it's it. It, as I said earlier, this the, the Gods of the Upper Air is a is a bit of a love letter to a cognate field, because I think there are some very very powerful methods and ethics in in this field that have to be celebrated and that are it seems to me that are really critical today, more critical today than ever than ever before. Um, First of all, the idea that a very powerful tool at your disposal in the social sciences is your ability to shut up, you know, um, like to listen, to really listen to what people are saying to you, like real actual human beings that you're interacting with across a table or in their most unguarded moments or in these times when you're you're doing your best to see the world as as they see it in moments when they forget that you're looking at them. And that's, you know, I've, I've learned this in conversations with my wife, Maggie. I've, I've learned this in reading these letters that, you know, there's a great power to um, this human connection and the things that you learn by not coming in and pontificating. That's point one. Point two, um, a certain skepticism about our ability ever to reach those unified field theories of the the social sciences doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for them and doesn't mean that we shouldn't work for ever greater levels of generality right that's also a humanistic project as we're breaking down the categories that we might bring to bear on any situation and trying whether it's experimentally or observationally to understand human behavior Um, but it is very useful to have somewhere as part of one's team, someone who is very skeptical about that project. You know, Boaz was once asked, um, you know, in all of your years of collecting and collecting and collecting, what's a theory? You know, give us a general theory. Give us something general. Boaz very famously um, thought for a moment and said, um, people don't use things that they don't have. That was his only, only recorded general theory. And it's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one, actually, because it's sort of saying, um, you know, you can draw up any schema that purports to explain the behavior of a group of people you're trying to, you're trying to understand. Um, but if they don't actually recognize your tools of analysis, you ought to be really skeptical about the degree to which those categories, tools, explanations are actually doing the, the driving. You know, if there's a great disconnect between people, what people say they're doing and what you say they're actually doing, um, live in that, you know, live in that disconnect for, for, for a moment because it will cause you to be a little skeptical about your 
um, your your your, um, your theories. So um, I think anthropology, which has undergone you know such um, upheaval and conflict over the last um, several decades, um, a reckoning of the field's relationship to imperialism and colonialism, which is, of course, um, overdue, um, a, a reckoning with museum collections and, and the history of objects um, that come into those collections. Um, you know, all of that was going on at the time of Boaz and, and Mead as well in different, in different kinds of ways. Um, but I think that should not cause the whole project to um, to just disappear, you know. And and it could disappear if 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 there's a total lack of confidence in, I guess, the ability of these pretty baseline methods um, to transform how we understand other societies. They're really valuable, and and I hope colleagues, you know, for all of the reckoning with the history of the discipline. Um, we'll see that there are some very powerful tools that if anthropologists don't stand up for them, you kind of wonder whether they might just disappear. Final point I'll make on that is it is so easy in our current moment, moment of, of being overwhelmed by data, right? I mean, data is coming at us, and, and it seems to suggest itself as value-free and objective, um, but of course, it's not. I mean, data always carry around with them um, their own origins. And anthropologists, because of the ethnographic sensibility, are particularly good, I think, at identifying that fact. And we're really going to need that as we build algorithms that actually instantiate our own biases. You know, there's, of course, so much work being done on this now, but anthropologists, I think, have a real, um, have a real role to play there. I love that. Well, there's a lot in there that I'm going to be thinking about for for quite a while as I as I turn it over, in my in my own mind. Um, last couple quick questions uh, about books and writers that you admire. So uh, I'm curious to know if, as you've sort of learned this uh, craft and and done a very good job in, in God's the Upper Air, who are the intellectual historians that you've read and been influenced by, or you know, have taken a page out of their books, so to speak. Uh, th th that sort of thing. Well, um, I mean, I don't even know if I if I count as an intellectual historian or not. But um, you, but you had asked me to think about some books that were um, that were really influential on me, and some of them are um, are right. intellectual historians, and others others aren't. Let's hear um, that then. So let me just see. Let me, this is my desert island discs. Um, <laughs> set of set of set of books, right? Um, I was thinking about one of the one of the books that sort of bowled me over early on, and it was. This may seem strange to you, but it was Nikos Kazantzakis's novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, which I read having grown up in a Pentecostal church in Arkansas. It um, offered me a kind of fundamentally new way of understanding Christianity and where I came from, and was really like an explosion going off in my in my brain um, because it seemed to give a different portrayal of a thing that seemed so set and obvious to me that you could tell a story in a in a in a fundamentally different way and have a different interpretation, you know, of um, of 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 the bible of the new testament and and um and that was really meaningful the more i look back on it the more i i was sort of interested in taking old stories and interpreting them 
mm. in new ways. The, the other thing I read as an undergraduate that linked up with that in a way that I couldn't have seen at the time was um, Hayden White's uh, Tropics of Discourse, which, you know, I just I got so interested in the interpretive turn in history writing, um, what you could do with uh, with ideas and biography and using that as a way of kind of overturning old narratives that was really really influential you know on the the 19 or 20 year old version of me um and then i have to say much more recently in the last 15 years or so um realizing how little i knew about race in the united states and um and, you know, I think in the disciplines in, in history writing and in political science, in particular in international relations, even, um, I think those fields are all going back and rethinking how they narrate the history of their of their own fields. So reading James Baldwin's or Neil Hurston and other writers, you know, sort of filling in what I now realize was an incredible gap in my own education um has been transformative and it was one of the things that you know i talked about being ignorant at the start of Pro project boy when i you know started god's the upper air i was pretty ignorant about um about race and the history of race in the united states and and, and the, the the racial um tinge on the development of the social sciences and this book was in some ways my own education in um in my own attempt at a corrective yeah, really interesting. That, those are those are three incredible uh, incredible choices there. So thank you for sharing that. Um, really fascinating here. So Charles, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, likewise. Thanks very much for being in touch, and it was um, it was really a lot of fun. That was my conversation with Charles King. Thank you for listening. If you want to connect with Charles, you can do so on his website, charleskingauthor.com. And if you want to follow along with more of my work, like I said, it's sort of developing a new edge and, you know, some different kinds of content in 2022. The best place to do that is through my Substack newsletter, which is at codycommerce.substack.com. And you can also follow along with me on my social media, on Twitter, at Cody Commerce, on Instagram, at Cody Commerce. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back here, not next week, because that's like New Year's, Christmas week. I'm going to take that off. But the following week in January 2022 with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.